I have emails from people whose lives have been transformed. I want them to know or have a sense that God is so much bigger than they had thought, that he is totally outside the box. Even though his behavior is uncertain in a world full of uncertainty, his character is not. His character is absolutely certain. And that's why the core question is, is he good? Is he involved? Chuck Colson has written a review on The Shack, and I've made copies of it available for you. It's in our bookshop, and it's simply entitled this, Stay Out of the Shack. <laughs> and Christians are endorsing this, and Bible teachers are endorsing this, and recording artists and musicians, oh, this is amazing. No, it's not. Regarding the Trinity, it's actually heretical. How many of you have read The Shack? Yeah, lots of you. And I'm going to ask the rest of you to read it too. And uh, you can pick up a book out there in the lobby today, or you can pick it up at any bookstore, doesn't matter. Uh, and please read to page 66 by next weekend, and we start that series journey at The Shack. And uh, invite you to think about somebody in your world who would benefit from journeying along with us into this series. Maybe it's a person who's far from God who's read the book and you've had conversation around it. Invite them. Bring them on your arm for the next four weekends, starting next weekend, and we'll press into the deal. And then consider hosting a small group, a small group discussion group for the four weeks of the series, or at least being a part of a small group discussion group for those four weeks. And uh, we think that uh, theology is best developed in community versus huddled up by ourselves in a corner, you know? Community is a safe place to develop theology and discuss theology, so invite you to participate in that. You can do that all out there at the Shack book table and so on. I want to say welcome to all of you. Did you have a happy and festive New Year celebration? Yeah, lots of you. Uh, I can't tell you the last time I was up uh, to ring in the New Year. I must be getting old for kids or something like that, and so I think I went to bed at around 10.30 on that evening, New Year's Eve, and uh, though at 11.59, a firework went off outside of my bedroom window. And so there was like this red light right outside my window, and it kind of startled me, like, boom, you know, oh, woke up. And it was 11.59, I was like, well, I'm up. So I watched it, the clock rolled over to midnight, and I said to myself, Happy New Year, and went promptly back to sleep. Anyone else in that same category? Yeah. Wow. Uh, if you're a guest with us today, we're delighted you're with us. I want you to know that you've chosen to be with us on a unique weekend. Uh, this is going to be a lot like a family conversation, uh, though it's kind of going to be a one-way conversation because it'd be a little difficult if we all participated. So I invite you to participate by just thinking about what you might say in response, uh, one way or the other, to the things I'm going to talk about over the course of the next two or three hours or so. Just kidding, <laughs> totally kidding. Just kidding. It's about 40 minutes is all. Three and a half years ago when we started Journey Church, we were born and we were founded and we were established with the incredibly bold mission of reaching people who are far from God and growing them up in Christ. And I and we and the launch team and the staff meant every single word of that mission statement. 
More than just being a nice slogan, like so many mission statements are these days, Journey's mission was intended to be the benchmark of everything that we do, and I mean everything. For several weeks around our public launch, I stood on this very stage, in this very room, and declared that we would actually measure the ministry and the outreach and the hiring and the financial allocation, everything that we do as a community called Journey Church, by the grid of that very mission statement. If it didn't accomplish one or both of those objectives, then we wouldn't do it. We wouldn't spend the money. We wouldn't hire. We just wouldn't go there. We wouldn't even start stuff we committed to that didn't meet one or both of those twin objectives as a community because we mean business by our mission statement. It's not just a slogan. Rather, it's what gets us up in the morning. It's what gives us purpose for everything that we do as a community. It's what motivates us, as a matter of fact, to press in and to press on and to press through when the going gets tough. It is our driving conviction, that mission statement is. But that driving conviction just didn't come out of me. It's our driving conviction, rather, because reaching people who are far from God and growing them up in Christ was and to this day continues to be Jesus Christ's driving conviction. He said as much in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Therefore go, Jesus said, and make disciples. Notice the word go. It isn't just like a stay at home kind of a thing. Rather, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the passage of the Bible, right, that so many of us know as the Great Commission. It's Jesus' directive, his instruction to us, the church, to be about going and inviting people to follow Jesus with their whole lives. That's what a disciple is, by the way. A disciple is a person who follows Jesus with everything about their lives. Nothing about their life is untouched by Jesus Christ. That's a disciple. And Jesus does this cool thing with his great commission. He gives us room and he gives us latitude to live that commission out in ways that are contextualized, is the word we use, to the culture in which we live. It's a great deal. Notice that Jesus doesn't give us the how piece of the great commission. The methodology is, by and large, left to us and our creativity, his creativity in and through us. Jesus very simply gives us the what piece of everything that we're supposed to be about as Christ followers and as the church. We as a community called Journey Church have contextualized Jesus' great commission right into our mission statement, reaching people who are far from God and growing them up in Christ. But the sad truth in America today is that the capital C church is sick. The capital C church in America is dying, as a matter of fact. I want you to know that just 2%, 2% of churches in the United States are actually fulfilling Christ's great commission by reaching people who are far from God. Research tells us that most churches in America are merely shuffling sheep from one pen to another, meaning that most churches in America are doing a fantastic job of reaching people who are already reached and who are simply shopping for a more comfortable 
a more hip, a more trendy, a more visually appealing, a more stimulating preacher, more contemporary music, and on and on and on the list could go of the reasons why people leave their church to consume and to take in the activities of another, quote, better one. This incredibly sad portrayal defines most churches in America today with just 2% actually fulfilling Christ's great commission and the rest, by and large, engaging in a great game, we call it, of sheep trading. But since before Journey Church was born in 2005, we have been absolutely emphatic that we will not engage in this great sheep trading exercise. We are adamant that instead we will occupy that 2% category amongst those churches that eat, that sleep, that breathe Jesus Christ's great commission mandate. But being a 2% church, see takes much more than just making polished public declarations about wanting to occupy that space. Something else must follow, a whole bunch else, actually. Because if we simply engage in the same things that the majority of churches in America engage in, won't we just get the same results that everyone else is already getting? The ineffectiveness of accomplishing the work of Christ's great commission by the majority of churches in America, it comes about because of most churches' ruthless quest to focus on just 40% of the American population. I want to draw this for you. It's not very complicated. It's a circle, a pie chart, and it's not so circular, but uh, you get the idea. And this would be right about there, about 40%, wouldn't it? Right right here, 40% or so. That would leave 60% over here. And what I want you to know is that most churches in America are pursuing only 40% of the population of the United States. By virtue of their philosophy of ministry, by virtue of their style of ministry, by virtue of their preaching style, their music style, they are in pursuit of just 40% of people in America. My question is, who's pursuing the other 60%? Who's thinking about them? These 40%, they have an enormous voice inside of the church because they make up most of the church in America today. But the 60%, they aren't anywhere around the church. They are nowhere to be found. It's people who dress differently than we do. It's people who vote differently than we do. It's people who are in a different economic strata than most of us are in. It's a different 60% that most churches in America completely disregard, ignoring them almost. And I'm not thinking of any one church in particular but rather in considering the whole of church culture. Now, see, it takes 40% churches to serve 40% people, right? But for us as a community called Journey Church, we will have failed if we're not regularly and aggressively and fully pursuing the other 60% of the American population who are being ignored by some 98% of churches. Victory and mission accomplishment is only ours when a legion, and that is a very large number, of unreached 60% people are inside the kingdom of God because of the collective ministry efforts of this community called Journey Church. I want to get very specific about what this looks like. There are a whole lot of churches in America that would have been entirely satisfied with a nice, simple, safe, sanitized Christmas Eve service. 
And while that is a very worthy goal for many, our goal, remember, is our mission statement. Reaching people who are far from God and growing them up in Christ. And we actually mean that. Consider with me for a moment how many people only attend a church-type gathering on Christmas or Easter's. In church culture, we call them C&E's, Christmas and Easter's, right? That means for us, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of C&E's walking around the world today, which means for us as the spiritual leaders of this community called Journey Church, we carry constantly the immense responsibility to not just craft a nice, simple, safe, sanitized Christmas Eve service, but rather to give intense amounts of prayer, thought, effort, and creativity to the question, how can we reach people who might only attend a church-type gathering one time or two times per year? A second question follows that one. How might we be able to break through hard hearts which harbor long-held resistance to the things of God? Because see, this 60% of people walking the planet today, they carry very strong convictions in them and perceptions of what the church is. They hold very strong views about what Christians are and what churches are like and everything that they're about And so they walk into this room and they take a chair expecting that somebody is going to put a finger in their chest and tell them how it's going to be. And lots of churches meet their expectation, don't they? A whole lot of places. And so we carry with us a responsibility to undo their preconceptions about what the church is, what the church is about, and how the church functions breaking through those hard hearts, see. Holding up candles and singing Silent Night will not alone accomplish Christ's Great Commission purposes. And there's nothing wrong with that. It just will not accomplish Christ's Great Commission purposes. And so, I want you to know that last summer, over six months ago, this award-winning drama script called Nativity on the Square was chosen by our leadership team with those aims in mind. This incredibly well-written script included, if you weren't here, a drunk homeless woman who retold the life-changing story of Christ's birth in a fresh, vibrant, and very real-life way. By the end of the drama, about 40 minutes long or so, even the drunk woman was changed by her encounter with the Christmas story, change that was portrayed by the very purposeful and intentional leaving of her bottle of alcohol at the foot of the manger as she exited the stage. Now, as you can well imagine, and my email box proves, a number of people found this drama to be very difficult for a whole bunch of reasons. But we have to remember as a community that our aim was not a nice, simple, safe, sanitized Christmas Eve service that simply made everyone feel really good about baby Jesus being born. Our relentless focus on reaching people who are far from God requires of us as a community that we actually think entirely differently than 98% of churches in America think because we are in pursuit of different results than 98% of churches in America. Our mandate requires of us that we be razor sharp and laser beam effective in connecting with people who are far from God and introducing them to Christ. Fulfilling that purpose then requires that we do things differently. We can't just say that we want to reach people who are far from God and then continue to do things that don't intentionally fulfill that aim. 
It can't just be rhetoric for us. It means action, and it means different action than some 98% of churches undertake in America. And I want you to know that that kind of action always involves great risk, doesn't it? If you've ever been part of a risk-taking endeavor, you know that when you step out onto the edge where faith and risk is involved, you don't get it perfect every single time. But that doesn't mean that you stop taking risk. Instead, it means you step back and you reflect and you respond and then you step right back out onto the edge, better equipped because of the learnings you've gleaned from the last time that you stood in that place. And at the end of the day, at the end of Christmas Eve 2008, right here in this very room, at least a dozen people let us know that they gave their hearts and lives to Jesus Christ. At least a dozen people let us know that they crossed over that great chasm that existed between them and God. They went from death to life. Astounding. And yes, that life and eternity-altering transformation came about at an event where the Christmas story was dramatically portrayed by somebody who all of us sitting in this room would consider to be on the fringes of societal acceptance. But that's a practice, see, that is quite normative and even, I would offer, advocated by God all throughout the pages of the Bible. Just a cursory perusal of the scriptures quickly reveals the reality that God was constantly and continually involved in choosing to use people who we would categorize on the fringe of societal acceptance, in particular, people who were just downright offensive to many, many in the normally accepted culture, and God used them as his chosen vessels of his truth, the couriers of his message. Just a few examples for you. In the Old Testament of the Bible, Joshua chapter 2, God chose to use none other than a prostitute, right? Fringes of societal acceptance. God chose to use a prostitute to harbor Israel's spies as they were scouting out the land that God had promised to them in preparation for Israelites' invasion and takeover of the promised land, a prostitute. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus elected to use a Samaritan to illustrate God's compassion and kindness to all of humanity. And we hear the word Samaritan, and we're like, so what, it's a person from Samaria. What's the big deal? A huge deal. There wasn't a more foul person walking the planet than a Samaritan to the people of Judea. And that illustration, when Jesus chose to use that Samaritan, that illustration caused anger, intense anger, by the people who heard it. Worse yet, in the book of Luke, chapter 19, for Jesus to use the chief tax collector, another incredibly filthy human being, by the perspective of the Jews, in the perspective of the Jews, for Jesus to use him, Zacchaeus, as the example of humility and repentance, it was utterly unthinkable in Christ's day. And then, the crowning jewel of God's use of, quote, offensive and fringe people as the vessels of his truth, watch this, God's one and only son, Jesus Christ, was born to none other than an unwed teenage girl. It doesn't get more fringe and socially unacceptable than that, does it? But this using fringe and offensive people as examples and as couriers of God's truth was a repetitive method of his. Neither Jesus nor God were or are in the least bit offended 
by their association with fringe and offensive people. We then, as a community called Journey Church, choose to take our cues from God and Jesus Christ on this deal. Jesus wasn't offended by associating with fringe people, nor was he above using them to illustrate truth in his parables and so on. And we feel then every freedom to do the exact same thing. That homeless, alcoholic woman who stood on this stage on Christmas Eve, reminds every single one of us, or should remind us, that even within what appears to be the very worst of conditions, that God is still at work in people's lives, offering himself and never giving up on anyone. We give up on people, don't we? God never does. And the church in general is much less apt to agree with God on that point than we who call ourselves Journey Church are. The church in general likes to create a climate and a culture that is, for the most part, free from any of the real humanness which actually marks we who are human beings. The church in general most likes to traffic in a view of itself that is clean and antiseptic, choosing to cocoon itself in a culture of comfort and familiarity that says we who are a part of the church, we're a part of it because we're good enough to be a part of it. And we're right enough to be a part of it. And we're clean enough to be a part of it. And we haven't done anything wrong enough to not be a part of it. Most of the church in America considers that they deserve to be a part of the church. But the Bible paints a much different picture of all of humanity, the church included, than that. Doesn't it? People, all people, that means you and that means me, are very raw and we're very real and we are actually much more desperately in need of a redeemer than we ever even realize. See, while we very often like to try to forget where it is that we've come from, all that Jesus has saved us from, it's that truthfulness about our condition that actually elevates our need and appreciation of our redeemer. That drunk homeless woman who stood on this stage on Christmas Eve is actually the picture of every single one of us. It's actually the picture of every single person on planet Earth. We're no different and we're no better than she is. And while some of us might go kicking and screaming into that reality, crying, no way, not me, just look at me. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 verse 23, for everyone has sinned. And we all fall short of God's glorious standard for Everyone has sin. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. She is us, see. Because in God's economy, a sin is a sin is a sin. Lust is no better or worse than adultery. Lying is no better or worse than stealing. Alcoholism is no better or worse than cheating on one's income taxes. That drunk, homeless woman who stood on this stage on Christmas Eve is every single one of us if we had been left to our sin. See? But once we've been saved... And once we've become part of the capital C church, the more and the sooner we like to forget all about where it is that we've come from and all about what it is that God has saved us from. We scrub up and we clean up and we dress up and we show up at a gathering like this, fresh looking and clear eyed, as if we'd been that way our entire lives. Because that's what the majority of the church says that we must do to be accepted by the church. 
But the Apostle Paul, the man who is responsible for a large portion of the New Testament of the Bible, he saw it otherwise. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 say this. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And we're like, yes, he sure did. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul goes on and he said, and I am the worst of them all. Now remember, this is the guy who gives us a large portion of the New Testament of the Bible. And I am the worst sinner of them all. But he says, God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul always kept in view what he used to be before he stepped into a relationship with Jesus Christ and everything that God had saved him from. He didn't ever try to put that out of his heart or his mind. He kept it front and center in his life for all of his days because, see, there is a certain humility, there is a certain gratitude, there is a certain genuineness to remembering our lives before Christ adopted us into his family and so dramatically changed us. Were it not for Jesus' saving grace and his trajectory-altering redemption that he chose to extend to us, we would still find ourselves in that very same place that that alcoholic homeless woman was in. And as a community, we concur and we embrace God's methods for breaking through with his gospel, especially into the world of the 60% who 98% of churches in America are ignoring and here's what we're finding as a leadership team around journey church a church that yearns to be one of those two percent churches in america and who strategically and very intentionally behaves in ways that bring that hope to fruition will actually cause established christians a certain measure of discomfort some of you felt it on christmas eve right in this room And the challenge that faces me as the lead pastor of just such a church, as well as the rest of our pastoral and leadership team around here, is to continually and regularly challenge and invite the rest of the community called Journey Church to press through and to press into that discomfort for the sake of our community actually fulfilling Christ's great commission. That means, see, that on our way to mission fulfillment, on our way to fulfilling Christ's great commission, there are going to be things that we do as a community on occasion that are almost entirely designed and aimed and intentioned to reach out and touch people who are far from God. The 60% of the people who are walking the planet that 98% of churches are ignoring, almost as if they don't even exist. And see, this strategy and this methodology, it can seem incredibly offensive to believers. But we as a community must have the maturity, we must have the perspective, and we must constantly consider and remember the truth that someone at some time, whether it was a church, whether it was a friend, whether it was a ministry of some kind, whether it was a coworker, someone at some time went out of their way to reach me, and someone at some time went out of their way to reach you with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And it's very likely that you or that I or that the methods that had to be employed to reach out to us with the gospel of Jesus Christ were in some way offensive to that person. But they pressed in and they pressed on and they pressed through it. And aren't you glad they did? I sure am. I'm really glad they did. And as your pastor, the only thing that I can do to be true to our mandate as a community, as a church, to fulfill Christ's great commission before the Lord is to ask you in a heartfelt fashion for your prayer, for your patience, and even more importantly, to ask you for your partnership as we endeavor to do what so very few Christ followers and so very few churches ever do, which is reaching people who are far from God. You see, in the early church, most of the earliest Christ followers were very happy with their faith just the way it was, quite static and quite pleasant. It was comfortable and it was predictable and it was quite safe. But then one day, God tapped those earliest Christ followers, the earliest church, on the shoulder and said, look, by the way, this gospel deal, this good news thing, it isn't just for you Jews. As a matter of fact, it's for the whole world. Gentiles, the Bible calls them. That's everyone on the planet who is not a Jew. It's for the whole world. It isn't just for you. And you talk about offensive. Holy cow, offensive. We can hardly fathom how horrific and dreaded and offensive that truth was to the earliest Christian culture. And it didn't come without a fight. In fact, it even took years for the church to fully embrace God's mandate that his gospel wasn't just for an elite and select group of people. The gospel for the whole world was seen by many of the earliest Christ followers as something that actually tainted the gospel. It's also something that just couldn't be further from the truth. And a church like ours, which chooses to design itself to primarily, though not exclusively, reach people who are far from God, thinks and functions very differently from a church which designs itself to primarily serve the believer. Let's just take the shack, for instance, as long as we're swimming in the deep end of the controversy pool. A church that chooses to function and serve the believer will run scared from a book like the shack. The pastor will stand on the stage in front of the congregation and censor the book. Will proclaim it as heresy and frighten people off from reading it. Stay out of the shack. You saw the pastor do it. Stay out of the shack. And everyone would laugh heartily in those circles because, see, the book is quite threatening to narrowly held theological constructs of who God is and how he chooses to function. It's threatening. But what a waste, we say. What a waste of an incredible opportunity to engage people who are far from God with a book that they're probably reading anyway, and if they haven't read it, they've at least heard of it. I mean, this book is a cultural phenomenon, is it not? And it's a great story. Young wrote it as a story for his kids. His wife urged, will you write your thoughts down about God and give it to the children? He's like, I don't really want to do that. But he did it anyway, and he had it bound like at a place like Kinko's, and he gave it to them as a Christmas gift. They read it and said, holy cow, Dad, you got to get this out to a whole lot 
more people. And he laughed at them. And they're like, no, we're dead serious about this. And so they started shopping it around to different publishers. But publishers were frightened of the thing. Nobody would even publish it. So Young and a couple of buddies got together and decided to self-publish a thing. And it started to sell more and more and more copies. And it climbed up sales chart after sales chart after sales chart. And pretty soon, Costco is selling the book. And Costco, as you all know, does not sell books that people do not read, right? The book has become a cultural phenomenon and it is sweeping America and it is a book about God. It's a book about God. And churches are going to tell people not to read it. Churches are going to censor the book. You've got to be kidding me. We're going to tell people not to read a book that's about God when it is a ready-made on-ramp to a conversation about God and who he is and how he just might function. How in the world could we be scared of that? And my email box has been filled again with well-meaning people who are more than a little bit alarmed that we would take up a message series about such heresy. But it is a no-brainer for us as a church that is designed to fulfill Christ's great commission, designed to reach people who are far from God. As a matter of fact, we're just taking the Bible at its word. That's all we're doing. We're taking the Bible at its word. Paul, Paul writes in Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, live wisely among those who are not believers, he says. Live wisely among those who are not believers. Now watch this. And make the most of every opportunity. Make the most of every opportunity. He goes on. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. Millions of people who are far from God are reading a book about God and the church at large is going to, in large part, ignore the opportunity to engage those people and as a matter of fact is going to publicly proclaim that no one even should be reading it. And I'll just bet you that some of these people in this 60% are sitting back, some people who are far from God are sitting back more than just a little bit confused about this whole deal, saying something like, hey, wait a minute. I thought the church was like supposed to be about God, but they don't want people reading a book that's about God. That's weird. I'm sure some people are saying. And not only is it weird, but it's contrary to what the Bible says we as Christ followers are supposed to be about. And so, Journey Church, I can only ask you to be patient and to be understanding as we occasionally do things that are designed to reach people who are far from God. I am very keenly aware that for some of us, that is a far stretch but it is our conviction from what we see in the scripture and from what we see in culture that it's not likely that we can function redemptively without some discomfort among believers and without some infringement upon Christians' preferences. See, we don't think we can function redemptively without infringing on some Christians' preferences. But in the words of Rick Warren, it's not about you. It is not about you. It's not about our preferences. Instead, it's about fulfilling Christ's great commission by making Jesus Christ as available as possible to as many people as possible. And so there is a great challenge before us this year. 
And there is also a great invitation that is before us as a community this year. And it's for every single one of us who call Journey Church our home to very gratefully and to very humbly lay our preferences at the feet of Jesus Christ. And not just for some dumb, trivial reason, but to lay our preferences at the feet of Jesus Christ for the sake of sharing the gospel with people who are living life far from God. People whom 98% of churches in America are ignoring. Why don't you take your things and set them aside and bow your heads and close your eyes if you would and just speak to the Lord about what it is that you're thinking about. God, we as a community are frankly humbled and awed that you choose to give your great commission to us. You could accomplish your purposes any way you wanted to. But you want to use us. And that's a bit mind-bending and mind-blowing even. And God, it's no small thing that you ask us to participate in. It's the most important endeavor going on planet Earth, as a matter of fact. In all of human history, your work is the greatest endeavor ever. And the fact that we get to be a part of it is stunning. And so God, I pray for us as a community that we would keep our eye on that ball. That we would be relentless in our pursuit of people who are far from you. People who are wondering if there's more to life than just living and working and dying one day. People who wonder if there's something else at the end of this life. People who are wondering if there's hope, if there's purpose. May we be razor sharp effective in telling them the truth that there is much more and it's you. And I pray, God, that we would never get in the way of your message. That we would merely reflect you to the people walking planet earth who are far from you. And may we reflect you brilliantly, God. Help us lay those preferences down that get in the way of your great commission mandate actually happening. Help us to be grateful and humble and just say, it's not about me. It's not about my preferences, but rather it's about God and his work and his kingdom and people coming to faith. We're yours and we love you and we're delighted, God, to be used by you.